good morning. Love it. Hope you guys have had a great, great week. Glad to see you this morning. I know many of you have family in town, maybe visiting with us, and uh, certainly our privilege to have you here. Others may be visiting with us. And as I said earlier, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We hope that not only do you experience the warmth of, uh, of a church family, but you experience the warmth of the truth about Jesus Christ. Uh, the church family can help you, but Jesus is the only one that can save you. And so uh, he's the only one that can truly fill you up. Meet every need that you've ever thought about, all the ones that you know and all the ones that you don't know. He's the only one that can give you eternal life with him forever in heaven. The only one that can do that. Our church is just a tool in his hand to present that truth to you. So uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. If you were to think about, uh, sort of in tandem with what we talked about last week, if you were here, if you were to think about what your family line says about you, what would it say? What would your ancestors sort of speak about you? And what I mean by that is if you were to trace your genealogy and go back and look at your family history, what's there? Now, I, I admit to you, I've not done this. I know a little bit about my family history. I have a great-grandfather who died before I was born who is in the, the Pennsylvania uh, Sports Hall of Fame. He was uh, a, a deaf man who was an incredible athlete. Uh, worked for years at the Pennsylvania School for the Deaf, then went to the Kentucky School for the Deaf uh, and, and worked there. And so my, my family history includes on my mother's side uh, that sort of, of line. Uh, I know on my, my dad's side, I come from a long line also of, of, of athletic type uh, people. Um, and uh, so I had no choice but to, to do that. That was all that I knew. And, and so I also know that, that in my family line, there's, there's a lot of knuckleheads. Um, maybe you're that way too. You got any knuckleheads in there? Now listen, they may be here. Okay. You might have some knuckleheads in your family line. I got a few of those. Somebody probably in my family thinks I'm the knucklehead in their family line. And my kids will probably say that about me one day. But, you know, I look back and, and, and what I know about my, my ancestry, there's both good and bad, isn't there? Golly, in your family, I'm sure it's the same way. You got a lot of stuff you'd, you'd love to be proud of and tell people about. I love to tell people about my great-grandfather. Never knew him, but what an incredible guy. I don't much like telling people about the knuckleheads in my family, you know. Some of them are still living. Now, if they listen to this recording later on, they'll, they'll wonder if I'm talking about them. Of course not. But, you know, your family line says something about you. And certainly we, we see in Matthew chapter 1 that the family line of Jesus also says something about him. And that's what we looked at a little bit last week, and I'd like to go back there again. If you have your Bible handy... Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, of course, if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, is the very first book in the New Testament. Don't feel ashamed to go to the table of contents. Look up the page number and find where Matthew chapter 1 is. We're looking at the very first chapter, the very first verse of the first book in the New Testament. And what we have here in Matthew chapter 1 through verse 17 is, as it says in the very first verse, the historical record of Jesus Christ. Now, as we looked at last week, it seems like a very odd place to start the greatest story that's ever been written. Why on earth would Matthew, the writer of this gospel, the writer of this incredible story of the life of Jesus, begin with a boring, it seems, genealogy, a list of what the King James lists as begats. If you were raised in church in years ago and you, you were raised in maybe a King James type of church and you, 
came to that part of you think, what on earth does begat mean? Your folks are just, I'll tell you later when you're older. You know, we'll get, but you understand that this is the begats. These are the folks who had the kids, and they went on to have kids, and so on and so forth, and they begat and begat and begat, and here we are at the end of all this. Why on earth would he include this at the very beginning? seems like an odd place to start. And it really seems like an odd place to spend three weeks in a sermon series talking about Christmas and a genealogy. And yet, as I mentioned last week, there is more than meets the eye to what we see in the begats, what we see in the family line of Jesus. There's a lot to learn here. The characters that God chose to include in the family line of his son Jesus are some interesting people, to say the least. There are folks that we would hold up as great examples, folks we'd be proud of to have in our own family line, and then there are some knuckleheads. Now, next week, we're going to look at the fact that God has a plan for knuckleheads like you and me. This week, we're going to look at something a little bit different, and we're going to see that the the genealogy, the family line of Jesus, I really think speaks volumes of truth for us today. It tells us, obviously, that God became a man. Jesus Christ was no ordinary person. He was fully a man, completely a man, and yet at the same time, he was completely God. He was both at the same time. That is vital to our faith as Christians. Understand that. If we don't get that, if we don't understand that Jesus was God in human flesh, then we don't get Jesus. We don't understand him. He was God in human flesh, the one who came to die for our sins. So when he became a man, there's a lot that goes with it. Now, last week, we looked at the fact that that Jesus, here it says Jesus Christ, and then if you look at verse 17, it says, who gave birth to Jesus, talking about Mary, who is called the Messiah. That was his job title, who became, what became his identity, of course, as the Messiah. And as that, he came to fulfill specific roles. Those roles, of course, were as our prophet, our teacher, the one whose words provide life for us. He also came as our priest, the one to, through whom we go to get to God. He's the one who died as a perfect sacrifice. He also came as our king. He is the one who rules, the one that we serve, the one that we worship. So the Messiah, Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. Today, we're going to look at another truth from this passage of Scripture, and it's this. Today's guiding truth. Look in the back of your bulletin. If you're a person who likes to take notes, we provided that for you. Today's guiding truth is very simply this. When God became a man, he proved that he is faithful. When God became a man, he proved that he is faithful. Last week, when God became a man, he became our prophet, our priest, and our king. That is true as well as the fact that he proved that he is faithful. Now, when I say faithful, you may want to, and this won't be on the outline, but you may want to draw a circle around that word and draw a few arrows from here. And let me tell you kind of what's built into, uh, in, in the Scripture, some of the basic things we talk about God's faithfulness. One of the things, you may want to draw a circle and draw, draw a line to, the, to this particular word and kind of make it look pretty on the back of your bulletin. How about that? One of the things about God's faithfulness is that he is unchanging. He is unchanging. Again, you won't see this on the outline. This is free stuff. He is unchanging. It means that, that he is, as in Hebrews says, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, that's a good thing. Understand that the fact that God does not change is a great thing. If God were changing all the time, we could not know him. God has revealed himself both in creation and more specifically in the Bible, and it is who he is from eternity past to eternity future. He is unchanging. So when the Bible says that God is love, that's who he always has been and who he always will be and who he is today. When the Bible says that God is just and he is righteous, he has always been just and righteous and holy and always will be. It is a good thing that God is unchanging. Part of his faithfulness includes his unchanging nature. Not only that, but it includes the fact that God is sovereign. That means he's in control. He answers to no one. 
He is God. We are not, and this is an important lesson for us to learn. It may sound very facetious or even even in sort of sarcastic just to you this morning. We are not God. He is. He is in control, and I'm thankful that He is. And so we understand in God's faithfulness, not only is, is He is he unchanging, but he is sovereign. He has always been in control. He is in control now and always will be in control. We live in a world today that does not like the fact that God is in control. Look around. We don't want to answer to anyone but ourselves. We ourselves want to declare that we are sovereign, that we are God, we are in control. And yet we know, if you're a person who's ever been down that road before and you've wanted to declare that you're in charge of your own life, I guarantee you that there have been moments in your life when you come to grips with the fact I'm not in control. That happened, guess what? I'm not in control. I realize now it's not me. Now that points back to the fact of God revealed in Scripture as being the one who is in control. God is faithful. It's proved in His unchanging nature and His sovereignty and also in His love. God is loving. He is faithful and He is loving. I think it's important that we understand that one of the main words, one of the, the, the great words in all of the Old Testament is the Hebrew word known as hesed, H-E-S-S-E-D. And that word simply means faithful love. God's love endures, the psalm says, forever. Now, now we also live in a world, in a church world, I believe, that, that wants to only talk about God's love. God loves you, and He certainly does. We don't like to talk about the other side, that God will, will justly and rightly so punish sin one day. But I don't think we also need to go on the flip side of that and forget God's love. We don't need to just present God as this judge who stands in heaven waiting for lightning bolts to fly out of his hand to strike those who are sinners and one day send them to hell. Certainly God will judge all unbelief and all sin, but he's also a loving God. Look what he did in sending Jesus to be the bridge and and fill the gap for our sin, to be the only way for salvation. He is loving. So his faithfulness is proved in his unchanging nature, his sovereignty, his his, his, his love, and also he's gracious. That means he gives us what we do not deserve. And praise God for that. You know what each one of us, myself included, deserves at our core? We absolutely deserve eternal separation from God and punishment for our sins. Why? Because He is perfect and He is holy and we are not. He cannot associate with imperfectness and and unholiness. He cannot do it. It's not in His nature to do so. But out of His grace, that unmerited favor, something we could not earn, He has extended through Jesus Christ the offer of salvation. He's faithful to be gracious. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 that when we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive, to be gracious to us, to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us, the Bible says, from all unrighteousness. When we talk about God's faithfulness, it's a loaded word, and I'm thankful that it is. It's a loaded word. It includes His unchanging nature. It includes His sovereignty, His love, and His graciousness. So as we move through this this particular sermon this morning, I want you to keep in mind that when I refer to the faithfulness of God, it's all that stuff included, all of it. And so we're going to apply those things directly to some situations and, and some truth here. But I want you to understand that when I say God is faithful, that means he is unchanging, he is sovereign, he is loving, and he is gracious in every situation that we'll talk about. So let's look at it. He is faithful even when we are not. One of the truths we get from this genealogy is that He is faithful even when we are not. 
Now, if you look in Matthew chapter 1, and I want you to hold your place there, and and we're going to get pretty familiar today with some passages in the Old Testament. So hold your place, put a ribbon there, stuff a bulletin in there, an envelope or something. Hold your place in Matthew and get ready to turn to some other passages here in just a minute. But this first set of names, now we won't ask you about these today. They'll be on the test next week. You won't have to pronounce them all today, all right? Don't you love the Bible names that you can't pronounce? Aren't they great? You know, don't feel bad. Your pastor can't pronounce them either, all right? <clears throat> so let's not try to pronounce them. Look at the first set of names. It says, my heading here in the Bible says, from Abraham to David. And maybe you've got a little subheading like that in your Bible as well. Or at least you, you see it says in verse 2, Abraham. Then you go down to the end of verse 6 and it says King David. So you get an idea that here's this first set of names. Matthew organizes these in three different groups. In this first set of names is included a time period known as as the period of Judges, which is found in the book of Judges. Now, the names are not listed all out here, but the time period is included here. Between the time that Abraham receives the call of God to go to the promised land and the time that King David is inaugurated into his throne, in between all of that, before the first king comes, there is this period of the Judges. Now, Judges, the book of Judges, follows the book of Joshua. And in the historical record, the book of Joshua is one of great triumph, great victory. It is the time when the Israelites received the promised land that God had told Abraham he would get for his people years and years ago. And so Joshua is this, this, this book full of battles. And they go and they conquer all these lands and they receive the promises of God. God blesses them over and over. And, and then we get to the book of Judges. Israel in the book of Judges, despite the blessings of God, was extremely unfaithful. Now I want to show you one verse in the book of Judges that really sums it all up. So turn way to the left in your Bible, and go to the book of Judges. And I want you to look at the very last verse. We're in in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. This sums up the unfaithfulness of the Israelites during this time. Remember, this is right after the book of Joshua. Incredible victory, incredible blessing. And, And here's the summary of the entire book of Judges right here. Verse 25 of chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And look at the last part. Everyone did whatever he wanted. Other versions may say each person did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did whatever he wanted. We could um, we could yank that verse out of Judges and, and write that over our current society and be completely correct. Everyone did whatever they wanted. The book of Judges, as I said, follows the book of Joshua. God's faithfulness, incredible in the book of Joshua. (laughs) The book of Judges, they do whatever they wanted. And as a result, if you go back and you read the previous 21 chapters and 24 verses, you'll find immorality, you'll find impurity, you'll find godlessness, you'll find perversion, you'll find murder, you'll find defeat, you'll find rebellion, and you'll find God's judgment when people do whatever they want to do. And at the same time, the book of Judges is also filled with God's faithfulness. Every time the people turn back to God, what does He do? He forgives. He restores. He gives them a new leader. He forgives. He restores every single time. Every time they turn back to Him, He forgives. Now, if we're honest, our lives are often the same as those in the book of Judges. We do life our own way. He is faithful even when we're not, even when we're doing life our own way, even when we're unfaithful to the Lord. Even at those times, He is unchanging. He never fails. He never leaves us. He never drifts. He never turns His back 
on us. He is unchanging. He is sovereign, still in control, despite doing life our own way. He is loving and gracious. Maybe you're a person this morning, and you come face to face with the fact that you've been doing life your own way. You may be a good person. You may be the nicest person at your job. You may be the person everybody loves to talk to, but you're doing life your own way, and you are, in a sense, running and drifting from the Lord. He is faithful, even when we are not. Not only that, when we're doing life our own way, but he's also faithful, as we'll see back in Matthew. He's faithful in the midst of our sin and our rebellion. You're wondering, how is he faithful even when we're not? Well, when we're doing life our own way, like those people in the book of Judges. When we're in the midst of sin and rebellion. One of the main characters in the Old Testament is mentioned here in Matthew chapter 1, in verse 6. It says, And Jesse fathered King David. Then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife, and so on. King David. Incredible figure. One who was called a man after God's own heart. Boy, gee, you read this, the story of David, and you'll be inspired. You'll be humbled. You'll be inspired. But there's one episode that you won't be so proud of. If you look in 2 Samuel, over in the, in the Old Testament again. I told you we'll get familiar with the Old Testament a little bit this morning, so hold your place in Matthew and keep flipping back and forth with me. A familiar story to many of you, even if you've not been in church maybe for a long time or even ever, you probably know a little bit about this story. Second Samuel chapter 11, it says this, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And here's where the problem began. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the top of the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported, This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent his messenger to her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. The woman conceived in verse 5 and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Here's David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the Scripture says, in blatant sin and rebellion. If you know the rest of the story, you know he goes on to call Uriah back to try to to get him to go to be with his wife. He refuses, so he sends him back with a message to his commanding officer to put him on the front lines and pull back so Uriah would be killed. So David, in his sin, in his rebellion, is guilty of adultery and murder. I'm sure you know the story. And then you, you see that in 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you turn the page maybe a little bit, You'll see that David is confronted by a guy named Nathan, a prophet, who comes to him and says, hey, look, there was this guy, and he tells him this crazy story about some guy who was so mean and, and, and took what was precious to somebody else, and David is enraged. He says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at him, man, to have this kind of boldness to look at somebody, and he says, you are that man. And David is broken. He's broken in his sin. And yet at the same time, God was faithful to him. God forgave him. God restored him. David dealt with some serious consequences. The son that was Bathsheba died as a part of a consequence. I'll say this to you. And in the midst of sin, in the midst of rebellion, God is still faithful, the consequences notwithstanding. God is faithful to forgive you, to cleanse you, and to give you the grace to deal with the consequences of your sin. Does that mean that if you come to God, then all the consequences go away and there isn't, there isn't a thing you have to deal with? No, no. Welcome to humanity. 
There are consequences for our sin, earthly consequences we have to deal with. But I'll say this, that in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your rebellion, God will forgive. God will cleanse you, and He will give you the grace to deal with the consequences of your sin. That's the kind of God we serve. God would not be just if there were no consequences whatsoever. There are consequences for sin. I can't point to your life and say, well, that's a consequence and that is. But we all know there are consequences for sin. But God in his faithfulness gives us the grace to deal with it. David gained incredible strength. I encourage you to read the story this week. Incredible strength. Even as his child was dying. Incredible grace from the Lord to endure those consequences. So God is faithful even when we're not. When we're doing life our own way, when we're living in sin and we're living in rebellion. And also, if you look in Matthew again, even in the midst of our drifting and our apathy, that word apathy there just means when we just flat don't care about what God is and what He's doing. Matthew chapter 1 in in verse 11, it says... um, at the very end there, the, the exile to Babylon. And then it says in verse 12, after the exile, the exile to Babylon. Now, <laughs> this, is, this is probably um, one of the, the more important events that, that has ever taken place in the nation of Israel uh, was this exile, a spiritual event. In Second Chronicles, write down the reference, Second Chronicles chapter 36, uh, beginning about, about verse 9, you see this drifting. Uh, they, they are slowly but surely kind of drifting away from the Lord. You ever been there? Here's an entire nation of people that they've seen God's faithfulness. They've seen what He can do. They've received His, his blessing, and they drift. They begin to, to think that they're the ones who can take credit for it, and they begin to slowly but surely drift away from the Lord. And as a result, despite all the prophets that you read in the Old Testament, calling Israel back, folks, turn around. Don't keep going that way. Turn back to the Lord. Give Him your, your full life. Don't, don't do that anymore, despite that. They continue in their drift. And what God had said was, if you continue to do those things, you will lose what is most precious to you, and that is the land on which you live. The best way I can maybe put that into terms today is if if you have any family land that that is maybe you own part of it or it's just in your family. And and if that was taken from you, I, I think there's probably something inside of you that would die. It's important to you. It's your farmland. It's it's where your grandfather worked. Wherever. It's where you live. Whatever it may be. Something in you would die. God told the Israelites, look, don't don't drift. Don't don't be apathetic about your relationship with me. Don't do that because let me tell you what. You don't think I will. But I'll take what's most precious to you. I'll take that land from you. And that's exactly what happens. But it's interesting at the very end of 2 Chronicles that we see God still being faithful in verses 22 and 23. And then what follows? The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. God did not leave them in exile. He restored them to the land, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And God proved that He never stopped loving His people. If you think about this, there are times when we are not faithful to God. There are times when we do life our own way. There are times when we sin, when we rebel against Him. There are times when we drift. There are times when we just don't care and we don't take it seriously. And the truth is, the great truth is that God is always faithful. He never changes. He's always in control. He's always loving. He's always gracious. So the call then is to turn back to Him, to repent, 
to receive his love and his forgiveness. That's what the Israelites needed to do when they did life their own way, was to repent. When they lived in sin and rebellion, repent. When they drifted and they didn't care, they needed to repent. So God is faithful even when we are not. He is also faithful on the mountain. He is faithful on the mountain. Each section in, uh, mentioned here in Matthew, from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus, each section includes times of great victory and great joy. In the first section, you have the Exodus. Uh, this time where the Israelites were in slavery to the Egyptians, and God leads them out. He parts the Red Sea, sw- swallows up the Egyptian army and Pharaoh and all that. And you see this incredible victory, this, this incredible celebration that follows. Then in Joshua chapter 6, you, you see the beginning of the conquering of Canaan, the promised land. And they march around Jericho, and they just scream and shout this, this interesting battle tactic. And all the walls come falling down. And you see them throughout the book of Joshua over and over gain victory. There are times of great victory. In, in the second section, David included here, you, you remember maybe the story in 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. When David says, look, you don't need to worry, King Saul. I'll take him on. And I love the trash talk that David throws toward Goliath. Goliath starts taunting him a little bit. And David comes right back at him. And he says, look, here's what I'm going to do. He said, in just a minute, I'm going to kill you. I love it. And then after that, I'm going to cut your head off, and I'm going to feed it to the birds of the air. I mean, how, what, what would you do if you showed up at a ball game and somebody's taunting that at you? You know, I'd, I'd just I'd quit. That'd be it. But that's what he does. David taunts him. And guess what happens? He kills him, and he cuts off his head, and he feeds it to the birds of the air. And you know what he said? He said, so that all will know the God of Israel is in charge. Well, I mean, how incredible. Not so that David could become king. So that I'll be a hero, he says, but so that everyone will know that God is truly the Lord. The third section you have included here the rebuilding of the walls after the exile. In Nehemiah chapter 6, they get the walls done in, in 52 days, build all the walls back up. And they have this incredible celebration and revival that takes place. God was faithful to them on the mountain. So when all is well, when all is successful, when you have enough, don't forget who got you there. The Israelites eventually did forget. And on every occasion that they did forget, they were unfaithful. But when you're on the mountain, when your life is good, when you have enough, when you are successful, praise Him. Don't take credit for what only God can do. There are many people in our world, many churches across America, that forget who got them to where they are. They forget who brought about the blessings in their lives. They forget who brought about the success they experience, the money they enjoy, and begin to focus and think, well, it must be me. Look at me and how great I am. What an easy trap to fall into. He is faithful on the mountain, and as a result, he's the one who got us there, and he's the one who deserves the praise. But not only that, he is also faithful in the valley. He's faithful in the valley. Matthew chapter 1 Again, talking about the exile. This was the low point in the Old Testament for the Israelites. If the high point is the exodus, the low point is the exile. They go from gaining the land that God had promised to losing the land that God had promised, and they never thought that it would happen. And when they lost the land, they lost their possessions. They lost their pride. They lost their national identity. They were captured. They were abused by an ungodly nation. And you can imagine they were depressed. They were discouraged. They felt defeated. 
They were very confused. They felt abandoned by God. But we know that the end of the story is that God was faithful, that he helped them endure, that he brought them out of the exile, that he restored them to the land, that he never left them. And eventually we see in Matthew chapter 1, the end of of this particular passage in verse 16, that God brought them the Messiah. Still he was faithful to them, even in the valley. I venture to say that there are many people here this morning who right now, or in a valley. Maybe it's one you created. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's one you can point to and you know exactly why you're in that particular valley in life. And maybe there is absolutely no explanation for it whatsoever. You're just there. Maybe you've experienced the loss of a loved one recently. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've had some family issues, going through a divorce, or just some really stressful times. I don't know what it may be for you, but there are folks here today who behind our pretty smiles and nice clothes are in a very, very dark valley. And you say, hey, that's great. God's faithful on the mountain. What about me? In spite of the lowest point in the history of Israel, God was faithful to them. I want to read you a song. Psalm chapter 40 says it this way. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. Maybe this will be your prayer this morning. He brought me up from a desolate pit, out of the muddy clay, and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. How happy is the man who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or those who run after lies. Lord, my God, you have done many things, your wonderful works and your plans for us, None can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask for whole burnt offering or sin offering. Then I said, see, I have come. It is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I delight to do your will, my God. Your instruction resides within me. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. See, I do not keep my mouth closed, as you know, Lord. I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. Lord, do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth will always guard me. For troubles without number have surrounded me. My sins have overtaken me. I am, I am unable to see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my courage leaves me. Lord, be pleased to deliver me. Hurry to help me, Lord. Let those who seek to take my life be disgraced and confounded. Let those who wish me harm be driven back and humiliated. Let those who say to me, aha, be horrified at their shame. Let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation continually say, the Lord is great. I am afflicted and needy. The Lord thinks of me. You are my help and my deliverer. My God, do not delay. You may be in a dark, dark valley. But it is God and God alone who can and will set your feet on solid ground. Who can and will pull you up out of the muddy clay. Put a new song in your heart, a song of praise to our God. And folks will look around and they'll see your deliverance. They'll see what God has done in your life and they'll praise his holy name. You may be in a valley today, but God is faithful even in the valley. And then finally... 
He is faithful to keep his promises. He is faithful to keep his promises. In the second verse of Matthew chapter 1, in fact, in the first verse, Abraham is mentioned. Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 received an initial promise from God, one that included the promise of land, the promise of descendants, and the promise of blessing. Abraham didn't think that God would be true to his promise, so in chapter 16, he has a child out of wedlock known as Ishmael. Chapter 17 of Genesis, God shows up again, reiterates the promise, and says, not Hagar, but Sarah, your wife, will be the one who has the child. Chapter 18, another message from God. He says, exactly one year from now, I'll come back, and you'll have that baby. Sarah laughs. She's pretty old at this point, a little past her childbearing years. And yet in chapter 21, in her 90s, she has a son. How many of you, age 90 and above, would want a newborn right now? I won't ask you. And then in Exodus chapter 1, we see the multiplication of those descendants. He promised him descendants, as numerous as the stars, as much as the sand on the seashore. And in Exodus, we see that promise beginning to come true. The book of Joshua, they received the land that God had promised to them. And then in the book of Matthew, we see that the Messiah comes. It says, the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He promised that you will be a blessing to all nations on earth. Who is the greatest blessing that has ever come. It is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's God's faithfulness to keep his promise. Though Abraham had been dead for thousands of years, God kept his promise to Abraham. What God promised, God delivered. And so for us today, we need to remember God keeps his promises. He promised to never leave us. He promised to give us peace. He promised to give us strength, to give us help to give us hope in the midst of difficult situations. He promised to give us wisdom to make decisions. He promised to always love us. He promised that if we'll turn to Him, He'll forgive and restore. And even when there are difficult circumstances, when there seems to be no way, when others may mess things up even in your life, when your life even seems ruined, God is faithful. He is unchanging. He is sovereign. He is loving. And He is gracious. When God became a man, we saw last week that He became our prophet, our priest, our king. And He also, at the same time, proved that He is faithful. He's faithful even when we are not. He's faithful on the mountain. He's faithful in the valley. And He is faithful always to keep His promises. And so I, I, I ask you, since He is faithful even when you're not, will you, will you turn to Him this morning? He will forgive. He'll come back to you. He's faithful on the mountain, so will you praise Him? Some of us really, really, I believe it, myself included, just need to have a really, really sold out, absolutely devoted time of worship to our God. And I'm not saying you put on a show. I'm just saying between you and the Lord, let him touch your heart because he deserves the credit. You're on that mountaintop, he deserves the credit. He's faithful in the valley, so pour your heart out to him because he cares and he knows and he loves you. And he's faithful to keep his promises. So I challenge you and myself, 
give him all of you. He can be trusted. God became a man, not just to prove those things to us, but to die for our sins. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, the Bible says. And those who remain in unbelief will face the judgment of God on their sin. But the good news, the overwhelmingly good news, is that those who believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, calling on His name, receiving Him into their lives, will not face the judgment of God on sin, but are forgiven and will spend eternity, not apart from God, in hell, but with God in His presence forever in heaven. And not only that, but you receive what John says in chapter 10, you receive full life, abundant life here on earth. You receive all of the faithfulness of God. And so maybe this morning, your prayer to the Lord needs to be one of confession and belief. To repent and believe in Jesus Christ, receiving Him for salvation. In just a moment, we'll have a a time at the end where you can respond. Maybe by coming down front and asking for prayer. Or committing your life to Jesus Christ. Or receiving God's faithfulness. Maybe you'd want to be baptized. Maybe you've been saved in the past and you want to follow God in believer's baptism and be obedient to Him in that. Or maybe you're interested in what it means to join this church. Love to be able to talk with you about it. But regardless of how we close our service this morning, I want you to leave having God touched your heart. So if you would, bow your head with me and close your eyes just for a moment. Give God the opportunity this morning to speak to you. Yield to Him in this moment to do whatever He wants to do in your heart and your life. Have you been living life your own way? Are you caught in sin and rebellion? Are you drifting from God? He's faithful even when you're not. Are you on the mountain right now? (laughs) Things are going well. Praise Him in this moment. Give Him credit. The credit that only He deserves. Are you in a valley this morning? Pour your heart out to God. He loves you. He cares for you. He's right there with you in that valley. You'll set your feet on solid ground. Do you need to be reminded of God's promises of love and peace and grace and mercy and hope? Those are certainly ones you can claim because God promised those and He's always faithful. Lord Jesus, thank You for proving Your faithfulness in coming to earth to be one of us and to be God at the same time. Thank You for dying for our sins. A death that we deserve, but one that You took. Thank You for being our substitute. Help us, Lord, to Be reminded of your faithfulness. Thank you so much for it. We praise you in Jesus' name.